0: Now I'm happy to um, introduce tonight's moderator, our friend, Peter Tokowski. Peter Tokowsky is head of academic programs at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, which almost burned down two days ago, and director of UCLA's Summer German Studies Program. A native of Los Angeles, Mr. Tokowsky has conducted ethnographic research in Germany that explores how contemporary society engages with the past, whether through enactment of traditional festivals or in patterns of everyday life. Tchaikovsky contributed to the volume, Inspecting Germany, and various other journals and uh, exhibitions. Please welcome Mr. Peter Tukhovsky.
1: Thank you, Gregory. It's incredible to be here. Uh, and I just want to repeat what an extraordinary organization Zokolo is. Uh, we've worked with them at the Getty Museum, and it's a great privilege to work with them here in Berlin. And really, every city should have their own Zocalo. So, uh, see Gregory about franchise operations. <laughs> uh, I'm going to very briefly introduce this great panel, and uh, there's so much to say that we'll just get going as soon as, soon as possible. At the far end, uh, my good old friend Wolfram Putz, who I was thrilled to discovered that we would meet again here in Berlin. He spent 10 years in Los Angeles. He received his diploma from the Technische Universität Braunschweig and then came out to Los Angeles and received a master's degree in architecture at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, or uh, Next to him is Dorothee Brands, who is the director of the Center for Metropolitan Studies And the managing director for transatlantic postgraduate studies at the Technical University of Berlin, Uh, and she received her PhD from the University of Chicago in urban history. Um, Greg Heise, next in line, received his PhD from UC Berkeley, uh, taught at USC for many years, but had the good sense to leave recently and head over to uh, the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Author of many publications on Los Angeles and the history and development of Los Angeles. Niklas Mach studied art history, philosophy, and architecture in Hamburg and Paris, completed a dissertation on Le, Le Corbusier and Paul Velody, um, and he's the arts and culture critic for the Frankfurter Allgemeine at Zeitung and before that at the Zuiddeutsche Zeitung. And finally, Roger Sherman received his MA at the Harvard School of Design, is an associate professor of architecture and urban design at UCLA. And he's the director of Roger Sherman architecture and design firm uh, which was received many awards and, uh, in architecture and design. Roger and Greg just arrived in Berlin on Sunday, as did I and uh, a group of students from UCLA. They've had a little bit of time to look around. And Greg, you said you made it down to uh, Potsdamer Platz. Missed opportunity, good development. What, what's your impression?
2: Oh, I'm sure in this in polite company, it's not right to say this, but I actually was very intrigued by it. Uh, and uh, I must admit, the most, the, I thought the best vantage was actually going towards the culture forum and looking back at it, where it really looks like it's sitting out in a meadow. Um, and so the sense of, 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 of one of many sites has been redeveloped in the city um, was, was powerful and compelling, and I think it, it, it warrants additional study. Actually, I must admit, I'm someone uh, I, I teach urban history, and I teach urban history that's international, planning history as well. Um, and I've have lectured Berlin in the past, and, and I've utterly rethought the city now that I've had a chance to be here. And that's one of the sites where, where, in essence, I would talk about it as being only corporate space, and now I think I need to talk about it more broadly.
1: Okay. Well, I think we'll have opportunity to come back to Potsdamer Platz, but just go to Roger and get first impressions. You were taken, you were saying, by the temporary architectural spaces.
3: I was. I was, I was here 25 years ago when the wall was still up. And uh, because I was a graduate student at the time, most of the monuments that were really considered worth, worth seeing were on the east, were in East Germany. So it was necessary for us to cross under. As it was, you needed to go by the subway and and show your visa that mean, by that means, but what i wasn't what was clearly more overwhelming at that time was the the kind of absolute uh, absence of the kind of vitality that one is used to, seeing that most most visibly in the, the lack of signage and any other form of kind of um, commerce that you would expect, so to come back twenty five years later and actually see um, what, that, that, what I guess I would uh, make it akin to is a kind of understory of growth it's something like a fire where I was curious to sort of see what the new generation of kind of urbanism so to speak would, would look like and I think I was much more struck by uh, perhaps it was just by virtue of the fact that I was in Prenzlauerberg and in um, Kreuzberg and so I may be a, a bit biased by that but I was, I was far more impressed with that somehow as an urbanist than I was by any of the individual monuments, however interesting they were, such as the, um, the um, Holocaust Memorial, the Eisenman Project, or the Frank Gehry Project, or, and so on. Wolfram, well, I think
1: of, of the group you, uh, are the most divided between Los Angeles and Berlin, Graft Lab, uh, a, a firm which he co-founded, has offices in Los Angeles and Berlin, spent ten years in Los Angeles and came back to Berlin permanently, how many years ago?
4: Two years ago. Two
1: years ago. So, how do these responses resonate with you? Uh, You missed some of the development in Berlin and now you're back. I'm not not actually
4: back, I'm back in Germany, but Berlin, I'm a first timer for Berlin myself. Obviously, as a German and as an architectural fan, you are obviously exposed and always well-connected to the city developments. I think what we're going to talk tonight, the topic being, you know, how has Berlin well, how is Berlin dealing on its architectural level with the past and how is the Potsdamer Platz, for example, um, one of the major projects that is basically finished now as an idea to reconstruct an urban fabric, not only a building and an urban fabric. And we can discuss and go deeper into what I think is missing or mm-hmm. why, you know, what is the sort of mistake in the thinking of, of the Potsdamer Platz uh, planning at the beginning. But <clears throat> the vital focus of urban development was in the east part of the city till recently and Berlin has always had a double center, either through uh, the separation of the wall or through different commercial centers and just recently we are beginning to look back to the western part. City west is a huge uh, push now from political top-down approaches but also from bottom-up approaches to commerce, entrepreneurs. So I think what we have seen 20 years now will sort of, the wave is kind of a retreating also or hopefully hitting the Western part again.
1: Well, I mean, let's dive right in. What are the missed opportunities? How, how, what went wrong in the last 10, 20 years? <clears throat> well,
4: if we say, there's, there's so much to say. but We obviously are focusing today on the past and we are, I would bring in the first term that comes to mind. That I think Berlin, the discussion about Berlin has a lot of um, moralistic arguments that kind of gravitate the uh, notion of nostalgia. We are trying to find an identity for this place, an identity within ourselves, and architecture being a physical manifestation as a city for it, has stirred a discussion after five, six years of openness into waters where a discussion of right and wrong, a discussion of a, for a role model, what kind of city are we rebuilding, how are we filling these gaps? We're driven by the idea of you could maybe polemically say to eradicate the past or eradicate traces of the past and to reconnect to the Germany that was a good Germany or the city of that part was a part of it that was not polluted by you know, the deeds this, this, these people have done. I think this is a major problem in the entire urban discussion on, on almost all projects that you see. And today, from competition results to political debates and so forth. Okay.
1: So we're going to come back around to that, but I want to go to Dorote. Uh, you teach a course on capital cities comparing Washington and Berlin. Washington is also a city, to a certain extent, built on uh, a history of slavery and moral problems. Is it, is it appropriate for a capital to foreground those issues in its architectural spaces?
5: Uh, well, I mean, one thing I guess I would also say, i am also just back to Germany and back to Berlin for two years, so much like you, uh, and I spent 15 years in the U.S., and I would come back to Berlin every summer, so in that sense, like you, I missed a lot of developments, but in some ways I also got to see them in a much different focus, because if you only see it you know, once a year, or sometimes I'd see it in the summer and then again for Christmas, you would really see sort of the radical changes. And this is something, and then, you know, I would take kind of that sense of change, you know, back to the United States. I was living in Chicago for a long time and then in Washington, and that it really kind of refocuses you to be able to see whatever city you're in. And I'm sure all of you who are here from Los Angeles right now, you have the same thing, that you don't just understand about Berlin, but you also understand about Los Angeles uh, by looking at Berlin. And that was the idea about that class on Berlin and Washington. And we did it uh, together with uh, students in Washington DC at the University of Maryland. And we did the same syllabus on both sides. And then they came here to Berlin for a week and we went to Washington for a week. And it was very, very interesting to see how from these very different backgrounds we approached the same readings, the same texts, and both of it was always focused on capital cities and how they differ, how they compare and uh, especially since both washington and <coughs> berlin are in many ways artificial capital cities compared to you know london or paris that are much more grown you know capital cities so i think there are a lot of comparisons but then there are also some radical distinctions that we particularly saw when we visited the two places uh, because when the kids you know from washington were here i mean they had much more the impression that there was so much going on here and then they got you know, very self-conscious. They were like, oh, if, when you come to Washington, you know, we'll have nothing to show you because there's not so much going on. But then we had actually experienced there was a lot going on because there's a lot of uh, different layers in Washington that you know, we here may, in many ways don't have, and slavery definitely being one of them. And also in some ways that Berlin's history as a capital is so shifting and it has so many breaks in it, whereas Washington's history as a capital city is continuous. You know, Once it was uh, established as a capital in 1791, it always was. Uh, so in that sense, I think we can't really talk about German cities or Berlin as in kind of an old city and then American cities as these kind of new spaces. In many ways, you know, it seems like Berlin is much more ridden by breaks. Okay.
1: So Berlin is, in a some sense, a new space, and it's, it's been capital in various imaginaries if you will some bold some Mm -hmm. some horrible uh our mayor in los angeles just recently dubbed los angeles the capital of the pacific rim i'm not sure if he consulted anyone on the other side of the pacific about that but um, uh niklaus i know you're interested in this this issue of the the imaginary of the city how does that play out if you're thinking about berlin and los angeles well,
6: the, I think the interesting part is if we're, if we're talking about first about Berlin and uh, um, its past, we always have to consider that Berlin has been, not only for decades, but for centuries, been a divided city. And if we just, have, we just go back to Berlin's history during medieval times, it has always been two cities, one called Berlin, the other called Köln. And then this merged into one form, but it was, it was two cities, a fisherman's city and a city of people... Who, who had a marketplace and uh, there was from the beginning of the creation of Berlin as a whole. You know, there has been tensions between uh, two parts of it. And so it's interesting to see that this effect of a divided city repeats in Berlin's history. And, um, and if, if, we, if, if we talk now about the reinvention of Berlin, and Berlin has always been an invented city, so uh, Baroque has been brought to Berlin, there was no proper movement, so architects have been brought to Berlin, so Berlin has this tradition of uh, being an invented city that had the longing to be something else, so so we take um you know, the late 18th century, this time Berlin had the longing, or of Berlin officials had the longing to become a mixture of Versailles and uh, and Paris, and, um, and now if we're taking the, the current situation, it's interesting that we have two movements, again in Berlin, which are completely separated and can't talk to each other because they're so, so different. Two planets, so let's say a younger group of architects who came here after the wall came down, and they have another idea of what could be a public space, of what could be a plaza, if we still use the term. So in one, one example is the, um, the group called Raumlabor, and they have the inflatable, uh, movable architecture called the Cushion Monument. So it's a, it's a box that you can bring on every part of the city and invent social life in this case, uh, on this place. And you have the other movement of architects who had their, their ideological formation during the 80s, so mostly postmodernist uh, town planners and architects, who have this vision of transforming Berlin into something which is a mixture of 19th century Paris and 17th century pre modern Siena. And so everything they're building, uh, you find these clones in the city, looks like uh, the Campo di Siena uh, remade by poorer materials. So you have these uh, contradictory movements of a group of architects who wants to create a kind of a new flexible, movable architecture who creates, in certain situations, uh, a new kind of urbanism, um, not even by building things, but but by just putting things there, like this um, cushion monument or by just putting sand into a certain deserted area of the city and saying, okay, we're creating with a few tools uh, a new urban situation. And on the the other hand, you have this desire to, to heal the wounds like they put it and to eradicate um, any void. And if we're talking about the re of Berlin, it's always the question, how do they deal with voids? One say, a void is a chance, and we have to play with it. And The other say, a void is a wound, and we have to close it. So that's the main ideological fight we are still in these times.
1: So Berlin has found itself in this unique situation. New capital, new city, new urban design. (laughs) Was it possible or is it still possible to imagine a Berlin that doesn't make recourse to these various histories, which, as you say, are, were imagined in their own time, and create an entirely new Berlin? Why didn't that happen? And i throw that out to anyone.
7: Well,
5: I nope. think in some parts it is you know, what you said. It is uh, this sort of sense of nostalgia and trying. And in some ways, I would phrase it even more strongly because i think sometimes it's actually revisionism uh in sort of harking back on a notion of history that is then accepted very uncritically right and is accepted uncritically in the name of sort of architectural unity Um, and i think you see this in a lot of streets you see it particularly at the whole debate about the stadtschloss uh which you know there it's said for historical reasons but particularly for the architectural unity we need to restore uh, kind of what has been there before. And it's in some ways, you know, eradicating history altogether because history is always a process and it needs to be understood as a process. Um, And it would have to be, you know, sort of the different layers uh, and, you know, the historical periods that have happened since, you know, the... uh, uh, since the explosion of the uh, Stadtschloss. Uh, so in that sense, there is not history being redone there. And It's all fake, of course, a lot of the stuff that's being recreated, and it's not just in that place. It's also a lot of the you know, sort of old houses that we see everywhere uh, that are supposed to create a sense of oldness and a sense of history, but they don't. I mean, they're very new, and they kind of eradicate you know, all the layers, and I think in some buildings, they are trying to do something different. Uh, like I think at the, what is it, uh, Neue Schönhauser Allee, that apotheke, right on the corner there, where they're trying to sort of uh, show, you know, the different layers. If you look on top of the building, you can see where they have some of the Stuck still, and they're kind of exposing, you know, the different layers. And I think that would much more be, you know, sort of a historical version of architecture that really shows, you know, the city as a palimpsest. The city has sort of different layers, and particularly in Berlin, where we have such radically different historical periods, uh, rather than just going back on a nostalgic notion.
4: I think one, one can say, or I, w- I would say that might make some people who were the drivers of that process unhappy, but I think what we saw in Berlin, purely in the, purely the field of, uh, of architecture, was a debate that was starting very open, <clears throat> in an open format, and we see still buildings from that time. Let it be from the, the Museum of Liebeskind or <clears throat> Jean Nouvel's... Uh, Lafayette, But very, very quickly, the discussion and the debate got kidnapped by strong opinion leaders within a power structure that was economical, on one end, and political. And they formed a very typical, for me, typical German debate, comparing it to my 10 years in LA, of a right and wrong. It became a very more, moralistic debate of who is winning the mainstream, and who has the instruments of power, politically and economically, to install a one solution for all. Um, <clears throat> they basically, I mean, there are famous anecdotes of Rem slamming the door and saying, I never will build back in Berlin. <clears throat> and the only thing he did was on Dutch ground, the Dutch embassy, and so forth. And from that time, 15 years ago, we are still carrying that heritage of, of, of a debate that is not interested, it's not about curiosity, it's not about experiment On in a city that calls for it. That even if you would create a compromise of is it a wound to heal or a void to to, to experiment with. It's driven by a fear of that Berlin couldn't stand it. Berlin couldn't stand talent, couldn't stand experiment, that the city would be destroyed if you would only build pink elephants, which is another famous quote of of that group.
1: Well, Nicholas, did did Norman Foster succeed, showed the wounds, created functional space, and also brought in new no, uh, green architecture?
6: If, if, if we're talking about Norman Foster's um, uh, Reichstag transformation, it's clearly a high-tech version of an old form. So no one ever had the idea to talk about what, what, what is represented. What does representing um, uh, stately power mean uh, in terms of an architecture for a city? So they were just, plus or less modern, um, rebuilding a historical form with this, this uh, cupola. So. I think, and what's disturbing to see is um, the speed and uh, this this strange will to to rebuild the city within a decade. So it was kind of an agoraphobia at that time um, of the then 50 to 60 year old town planners to close every ward in the city to to do that with what they called healing wounds. And so playing with these open spaces was nothing that, uh, that. they liked very much because they thought the city has to be narrow streets and uh, and they tried to rebuild, of course, a culture of density. But if you look at pictures of Potsdamer Platz in the 20s, you see neon lights and a chaos of the most different forms and little skyscrapers, to German standards, high-rise buildings. So it looks completely different than it looks now. And if you look at Potsdamer Platz, we're talking about Potsdamer Platz, the most funny thing you can see there is that they scaled down the windows of the high-rise building to to, to a minimum. That is allowed in Germany to make the building look bigger. So, if we're talking about authenticity, uh, it's a complete fake. Even the scale is fake because it looks like a like a hundred sixty meter high building, but it's much smaller. But they reduce the scale so it's, it's. If you look at it, you think it's a three quarter model of a skyscraper, and people have to work in it, and look, uh, live in Small it. Small people. And, yeah, people automatically get get smaller when you're sitting in these buildings. So. It's complete, even that is a complete fake. And so this whole discussion about authenticity and rebuilding um, the vividness of a, a city is uh, on, on a totally wrong track because they, they try to rebuild formal structures instead of understanding structural, <coughs> structural ways of making a city more lively and uh, more vivid. So that's, that's why we all, everybody's talking about Schinkel. And what they do is to rebuild forms Schinkel invented. But if you think in the spirit of Schinkel, of course you have to. Would have to create another architecture than the high stack sculpture by Foster, which is like a sleek modernist version of, uh, of a historical, pretty stupid form.
1: So, Roger and Greg, is this conversation completely alien, or do we have any kind of parallel issues and debates in Los Angeles? Are we...
2: Well, the, uh, one of the many guiding and, and generative myths about Los Angeles is that it's a city of the future. It's all about progress. So Vieira is just the last person in a hundred years of, of, of claims about being the capital of the Pacific Rim. So from 1880 forward, really almost from 1850 forward, people are talking about a Pacific century emerging and that there's going to be some a capital to that, and it's going to be Los Angeles. First it was an agricultural empire, then it was a commercial empire, but in all of this discourse, Los Angeles is always about the, always about the future, always about progress, with a capital P. Now the past plays into this, of course, because there shouldn't be one, right? I mean, it's all again—it's all about the future. Um, And unlike Berlin, where there has been lots of loss and there continues to be uh, destruction, creative destruction—a process of creative destruction—in Los Angeles, history literally unfolds in space. So though people think about it as a place that's been shaped by creative destruction, where the past has been ignored, on the contrary. Come to Los Angeles. I can show you shotgun houses in Lincoln Heights. I can show you workers' cottages in Atwater Village. I can show you basically every epoch of building is still on the ground and in place. In essence, rather than tearing down and rebuilding, it just moved out. And so it almost not in the growth of the trees model out the Chicago School, because there was always multiple centers in Los Angeles, but you can just see the interstices fill over time, and these are different epics. So the San Fernando Valley is, is built in a pattern in a, in a, with a model with types that are all of a moment. Same with Westchester, same with, same with Compton. I mean, you pick, you pick your site and you can see the moment frozen in time. And so in that way, it's a very interesting laboratory for urbanism, because all, of these, all these things are there. But again, unseen. So people don't spend time looking at Lincoln Heights and East Los Angeles and those parts of the city because they're just not supposed to be there. I mean, some of that has to do with who's there, um, primarily Latinos rather than, than Anglos. Um, but
1: you can but I mean, see we, this past We there. find ourselves in Berlin. this, to me, odd phenomenon where every day architectural debates are occupying the front page currently, of course, the Stadtschloss. Uh, should we or do we want to bring questions of architectural history to the front page discourse in Los Angeles, Roger?
3: I don't think that that's really relevant in Los Angeles because uh, it's almost a godless environment. It's the opposite of the right versus wrong. I think that uh, there's actually uh, such a disregard for the meaning of history that one can actually use history with complete impunity. Uh, For instance, it's now you, it's no longer, I think we moved from a traditional, Uh, kind of of low canopy, medium, kind of a tree model of growth where you can tell when something was built by the style that it was in and the pattern that was laid down to a point now where it's more like hip hop where you can just pick and choose what style you want on the basis of what your marketing team tells you. So now you have developers who are building on the basis of Disneyland as the urban model, not on the basis of real cities. But of course, actually, if you look back in the history of Los Angeles, it's always worked that way. Culver City was founded as the basis for us. The downtown was a back lot for the studio. Um, They built in West Hollywood apartment buildings that looked like New York so that they could lure young actors and actresses out to live there with the promise that they could live like they were in in New York. In other words, Los Angeles is entirely um, unapologetic about borrowing when it needs to and so on. So the history is really not one of any kind of thing that bears authenticity so much as something that is just relative and, and expedient as to when you need it. I think that there is, there are issues of authenticity I think that come to mind now when you are, when there are actually places that are acting as bona fide urban environments that are now privatized and, you know, Disney, it's, it's the line between what's clearly a theme park that you have to pay admission to enter. And when you're actually going to something to have a shot to, to, to walk your dog, and in fact it, it was built on the basis of it looking like Disneyland, that is is somehow problematic. But it's not history in the traditional sense of being, of the problem being that it doesn't fit in with the nature of the existing context. I think it has to do with the, it has to have something to do with the source material and how it relates to actual lifestyle. For instance, those of you who, who have lived in or spent any time in Los Angeles know that in spite of the fact that all of the stores are on the boulevards many of the times, that everybody always goes into the stores in the back. You park behind the store and you go in through the back door. So in fact, um, it's a little bit like the matrix where the city that you see is not the city as it actually works. And that's in fact what mo- mo- many of us like the most, which is a misuse of the way that things are. And I, I felt that in Berlin here, there was a sense of that um, you know, the misuse of things that were once one thing, and the urban life is taking in place in the places that it's not supposed to typically happen. And I enjoy that, but I also, at the same time, ask myself whether or not there are the seeds of something interesting were architects to be, more Los Angeles architects to be interested in urbanism than simply interested in architecture, to begin to think more about making architecture that's more prototypical, that's about creating new types as opposed to simply one-off pieces.
6: It's very interesting to link this, what you described as a culture of misuse, um, to the culture of failure we have in Berlin. Because I, I would argue that the, the most interesting places in Berlin are places uh, that uh, have been invented after something completely collapsed. For instance, take take uh, Berlin clubs, which are on the 18th floor of, uh, of ancient GDR office buildings. So uh, you find the most interesting clubs on the 18th floor, the most beautiful ones. you have a sunrise in the morning. And if, you, if you stay up all night, you can you can have in the club, stand in the bar or dance and look into, into the sunlight. So this is very unique in the world. And that's only because someone was allowed to create a club in the 18th floor of a completely empty house. And so you can argue that, that um, this culture of failure, which, which goes to places which became dysfunctional. I mean, Berlin is a, is a bunch of dysfunctional places, and you can't see this as a chance to say, okay, we have Palastro, when we had de Republic, like the old then dysfunctional building of the uh, ex-GDR government. And so people moved in, uh, artists moved in, There were a theater place where you could drive with a car on a stage like 150 meters long. So it was one of the most beautiful stages in Europe. And uh, you had art exhibition sets, so the place was unique, what they did was t- to tear it down, to create something that looks baroque. So something very extraordinary, created by failure, was destroyed to, to create something very ordinary. And that's the big drama. So I think if we could learn something from, from LA, to put it like that, it's not what, what people did looking at Hollywood movies and behaving like cowboys, saying, you blew my schloss, I blow your blast," which is like <laughs> the thing people in Berlin learned from Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. you say, I'm the cowboy of the good architecture, I blow your modernism, and the next comes and say, OK, we crash down your facade. So this is the culture we have now. But if we if we could learn something from LA, it's certainly a kind of productive misuse of um, of buildings, which are there, of dysfunctional structures, which you have also in LA. Mm-hmm. So um, that was what interested me most going to LA, was how creative people used car dealers' shops, Transformed to galleries, or mm-hmm. like this, uh, this kind of constant transformation of places that can be used as a, a place to sell cars, or to, to to create art, or to play music. So, and I think there's a deep link between cultures here and uh, and yours, then. So, so you idea a constant transformation and creative transformation.
1: All right. So the UCLA students are going to need the addresses of those clubs. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, isn't this? always where cities are most interesting, where people have imposed their own lives on the architecture. I mean, that's what the appeal of Berlin is with the appeal of LA. And I assume in other cities, And you know, and having two architects on the stage, I say it at, at, at some risk, but um, isn't, isn't that what really makes cities interesting and, and lively? Is we, someone mentioned signage earlier and the way people impose their aesthetics on, on the form of a home and, uh, and onto urban planning as well?
4: I think so. In particular, I think LA and Berlin are similar in the sense that th- those cities do not grow their vitality from within, from the people who were born here, but they are s- attractors of people to come here. And the level of accessibility of an fo- of a, of a alien to become and be able to belong, to make it your home and to put your energy into a city, and let it be architecture, music, scene, whatever, is comparable. Therefore, the people in Berlin who bring this vitality—the you know the creative class, whatever that you know—that is <laughs> um, big other discussion—they are not the drivers for this idea of creating a conformity of of, of architectural backdrop. Um, they are not interested in. In, in finishing the novel that Berlin was meant to be. They're interested in more something that is L.A. L.A. for me is much more a telephone book with small items that I discover and they unfold their stories in a very small territory. Although L.A. was marketed originally as a dream, that, as a, that it was a novel, but it has not become that.
1: Well, do we, um, do we include immigrant Populations as this creative class coming to cities? I would
4: think so, although our, our ethnic hills here in, in Berlin or Germany is obviously much more, it's pretty much dualistic, with one major immigrant group from Turkey. And then you have obviously other smaller pockets, versus LA, where you have by now 50% Hispanics, but um, you have you know, the largest Armenian city in the world and so forth. I mean, these are the anecdotes you can tell about you know, at home. But for me it's really about the accessibility and what is accessible is allowing you to author yourself with whatever you bring. Whatever you in, in the city is a is a curious place or a disinterested place, which is the similar possibility to be allowed to do what you want to do. But Berlin has become in terms of our profession here something that prescribes what to do to the to the extent that you have a design code here for what materials facades have to have, and the facades have to be vertical formats with window openings and so forth, which has driven away quite a you know, bigger portion of the, of the architectural.
6: I think that's the big trauma that what you describe as a creative immigration in Berlin is completely disconnected from any architectural discourse in any form. So it's a little bit like as yes, if uh, your parents are you know, buying uh, furniture for your apartment you have to live in for the next 10 years. That's mm-hmm. the situation. So you have you know, the, the architectural parents building the city in their conservative yeah. style, and then you have people who do interesting things here, but behind both facades. That's the drama of the city. But this creative immigration does not translate into architecture or into any kind of uh, urbanistic discourse.
5: Maybe not so much that, but I think it does still translate into vitality. And maybe that, that's what yeah. makes Berlin such a curious case, uh, that there are all these limitations and that the people who make the decisions about what architecture is put somewhere uh, for the longest time you know, belonged to a different generation and had completely different interests uh, that were more backwards oriented. But then a lot of the people that come here, I mean it's a lot of young people who moved here. They did bring a lot of uh, energy and they did bring a lot of alternative uses. I think you know, there's a reason for why you know, a lot of French people move to Berlin rather than to Paris now. Why a lot of people, you know, move to Berlin rather than to London. Uh, because things are possible here that aren't possible in those, you know, Apart from building. established. Not for building, yeah, right. Yeah. But I think that's sort of the interesting thing, and maybe precisely what you say. It's like the architecture, you know, it's like as if your parents are buying your furniture, but then, you know, maybe the kids come in and they kind of do something else destroy with it. In a very yeah, yeah, they destroy it in a very yeah. limited so way that you can do it. Throw it out of the window um, yeah, out. and I think right. the interesting thing there is, too, to see you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, how much innovation there still was and how much alternative use and how much of that has already gotten lost, right? A but lot of de- alternative clubs. Can I clubs just jump in here for yeah. a second? Because
2: this whole question of repurposing that we're talking about this issue of repurposing puts to, puts to lie the whole idea of authenticity and dysfunctional, right? Because it's not. Because people are creative. So there's design guidelines everywhere. I mean, in South Los Angeles, there are design guidelines. That doesn't stop recent El Salvadoranians from having chickens and other animals in their backyards. Well, the site was not designed for that.
1: Did it, I mean, did anyone ever move to Los Angeles for the architecture?
2: What they moved for was the possibility to create. I think, and so it, it may not be the sort of richer Florida creative class. It may not even be the scale of, of people who are coming to Berlin. But I think Los Angeles also mythic, also part of the dream, is a place where people make themselves, right? I mean, that, that's always been the big myth, that you can remake yourself. And that has to do with, with all sorts of things in terms of identity, but it also has to do with the physical environment. So again, I go back to a tract house in South Los Angeles, built by an anonymous builder, who built many along the street, right? Or along by a particular type, with particular standards, particular building materials, I mean, all that structured it, right? They never intended to have a barnyard in the backyard. But recent immigrants have, have Create, repurpose that space and turn it into something utterly different. Is that dysfunctional? I don't think so. Is, you know, is, is it authentic? Of course! It's utter, both were utterly authentic. One was an authentic tract house, and there was, uh, the other is an authentic repurposing of a tract house into something utterly different.
4: And the aesthetic experience and your personal identity has not collapsed because somebody did so. I
1: mean, On the we, contrary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a richer city for right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what is a, an urban planner and a politician to do with <clears> this <throat> historical fact that cities are about people coming and repurposing them, at the same time they have to decide what in Berlin, to put uh, where uh, Stachlos once was, or in Los Angeles, how to deal with uh, looming uh, environmental and energy problems. I,
3: I yeah. think. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, no,
1: no. I'm saying. I, sorry,
3: I think. Sorry. I think Los Angeles is. Um, <clears throat> it, that's a very problematic question in Los Angeles because I think planning is dead in Los Angeles. It is dead. Uh, that developers are basically in the pocket of politicians. And basically, the other way around. uh, Well, it could be. Could be both. Uh, Yeah, politicians are in the pocket of the developers, is probably a better way to put it. Any project of any size, um, basically, the zone, the, the planning code is thrown immediately out the window, and everything is what's called re entitled according to whatever the developer wants to have happen because that developer has given money to that politician. So it's actually very, you know, planning has, maybe that sounds a little bit like it's a, it's a different form of tyranny than I'm hearing being talked about about Berlin. But as a consequence of that, you have somebody like Eli Broad deciding what the civic park should look like, which is the park for the the central park for Los Angeles. And that's why, uh, which is the reason that Pershing Square has been designed and been built three times and it still doesn't succeed because um, there's no um, there's no support or there's no advocacy for actually the public because the public is interested in their own personal business plan not necessarily that it LA has a very problematic relationship with the idea of collectivity and I think that, that if I might go so far as to just say that my own personal opinion is that architects in Los Angeles suffer from this as well because they're Because I think that they're they're much they've they've made their their kind of uh, stock and trade from private home industry from building private homes for people, and as a consequence of that, have tended to limit their thinking to the means by which a building is built, how how it's kind of crafted, and not necessarily to look at a kind of larger role that they can play in city making. I think there was a moment in the early to middle part of Frank Gehry's career where there was some promise like Loyola University and Edgemar and things like that where Gary was actually trying to make urban spaces that could be seen as a kind of way of of thinking about how space in Los Angeles, how you would make space that actually was suited to the way that people actually lived. But I think that that has become a lost leader amongst a lot of architects who have failed to sort of show an interest in how they might take a more active role.
2: Just very quickly, everything that Roger said is true. Let me give you a counterexample. The port is the largest polluter in the city of Los Angeles. A group of local residents, primarily of color, have come together and organized against the pollution of the port. They've now teamed up with a group of, of, of uh, Latinos further north, where the, where the, where the rail line runs with the, with the port containers. They created the Alameda corridor. But kids have to cross the railroad tracks to get to school, and they're, and they're, they're in danger. That group is fighting that issue. All all those materials and all those trains go out to the Inland Empire, which is the largest multimodal uh, transport facility in the country. The groups that live out there are organizing against that because it's dominating the economy. Those groups, small local groups, have all banded together, and they now have created a a, a new plan that literally follows the vector of transit and and transportation and the transshipment of goods through the region. So, yes, there's a lot of top-down, you know, people in pockets, people paying off people. There's an awful lot of interesting bottom up around issues of of public safety and pollution. Uh, And so I think we need to be thinking about both of those scales and both of those kinds of issues when we think about planning and and development in Los Angeles.
1: Well, uh, Los Angeles architects are also finding work in Berlin. So uh, we've got the new embassy, which uh, Gregory Rodriguez of Zocalo wrote a scathing review of when it opened. And of course, Frank Gehry next door. any Berlin reactions to our contribution
0: to your cityscape?
4: No. <laughs> well, Frank's, Frank's building is, uh, is interesting because it is used by both parties in the political discussions as a, as a good example. The people who claim that we should rebuild a baroque you know, urban novel in this town say, hey, look, Frank Gehry, he actually managed with that design cone to build a great building. And he had this little fantasy freak show inside. That, isn't that great? <coughs> and then, you know, obviously, the other, gro- <coughs> the other group knows that Frank didn't like that design code and uh, still <coughs> said, okay, I'm going to do one. And uh, only if you allow me to have my wobble facade on the backside, where it's you know, not historically important. Um, so I like that one. The, 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 um, we talked about it earlier. The <coughs> I like the colleagues who built the, um, the embassy. I don't like the embassy at all. I would consider Daniel Liebeskind also an American architect who had, a, um, obviously, a longer stint here in Berlin, and I think built the most interesting building in the city, and the most influential building for actually Berlin discussion. That still can serve as a benchmark for a progressive, you know, group to make an argument. Hey, you know, because nobody can say anything against it. It's such, you know, it's pretty much. After all critical sort of filtering still a successful piece. Is the
1: Jewish Museum the only example we've hit so far where the architects actually shaped the usage and transformed the museum I mean it, it, right the, the, the old building had to change because of the success of mm-hmm. the new building mm-hmm.
5: But oh, I, I would actually disagree with you because I always had the sense uh, with the Daniel Libeskind building till I went to Toronto and I saw one almost like it by Daniel Liebeskind. Denver has one, looks almost like it. And it's sort of this multiplication, you know, this kind of star architecture that we now have, every city has to have. It's, you know, Liebeskind, it's Frank Gehry. And that that's actually robbing a lot of cities of their distinct identities. But at the same time, I mean, they're often intended to create kind of this you know, global idea, right? These are global cities mm. because they have the same architects building, you know, in all of these and creating new networks. Um, but I I guess I wouldn't call it, you know, because of that fact that mm. it is almost getting to the cookie cutter version of it, um, that it is, or that it should be called Berlin's most, you know, sort of successful piece of new architecture. Mm, okay. um,
1: so, Nicholas, let's say that the, the latest problem with the Stadtschloss competition uh, requires us to go back to the drawing board. What are we going to do with that space?
6: Well, I mean, that, that's a very long story. And um, uh, I think one, one possible answer to your question is to look back shortly to the um, Frank Gehry building, which is a very educational building, and a brilliant example of something seemingly affirmative but devastatingly critical. Because if you look, at, he was forced to build with stone. So he imported the biggest stone uh, a truck can possibly carry. So these are massive like, like, like this and the high, like I think three or four meters high. So that's the biggest stone you could transport to Berlin. And once put there, it shows um, how, how strange the pseudo uh, stone facades look. And if you look at the Schloss, I mean, one of the many problems is that you can't create a facade who has uh, the aura of a century old building. So it will look cheap. It will look like like a birthday cake with all these ornaments on it. So, um, but I think, now what, what happened with the Schloss, to put it very shortly, is that there was this longing to rebuild a very ugly, baroque, not outstanding, uh, baroque building, and they had to justify it, because just saying we want a Schloss and please give us half a, half a billion uh, euros, wouldn't have function, so they created the idea of putting something uh, called the Humboldt Forum into it. It's a Humboldt, uh, one of the brightest figures of, uh, of German Enlightenment. So uh, this relates again to the so-called good story of Germany. But the interesting thing is that the idea behind it is to put there a museum for non-European objects, to, to display objects come to, that, that came to to Europe, in often problematic ways because it's also that's a colonial story behind it. So um, it's a little bit like Columbus, you know, searching for the way to, the, to, to India and discovering America. They, a certain group wanted to have a schloss, and they found the idea of building a, a, a museum for non European objects, which is completely, could be something completely new. That's a very interesting thing, and I think people should dare to say, okay. Finally, we found something very interesting, and we have to, you know, we have to respond to this uh, thing we found and to rethink at least the the inner structure of the so-called schloss. But what's happening is they try desperately to squeeze it into the, the the rebuild thing. So it's a it's a unique process that um, you you want to build a museum, and um, the shape is already there, but the building is not there. So. It's, it's a weird situation we're in. And so something, somebody, I think, should, should dare to say, we're in a complete surrealistic situation. Either we want a very interesting um, uh, ethnological museum, then we have to rethink the whole project, or we just want Schlossen to put anything into it.
1: So well, I, I'll, I'll take that opportunity to say yeah. just that. I mean, the, the leaders of the Berlin museum world have been at the Getty Center telling Los Angeles what an extraordinary... Uh, Set of buildings they're building here, and I'll say from a museological perspective that it's an incredible missed opportunity. There's wonderful things happening in the museum world, certainly where we don't have this 19th century or older division between the European collections and the, and the rest of the world, and that opportunity looks like it's going to be missed in Berlin. Having said that, a last word to our Los Angeles representatives. What's our Stadtschloss? Uh, is it the uh, Frank Gehry's Concert Hall, What do we need a building downtown that's, that speaks to our past, or is Los Angeles a whole different uh, ball game? Go ahead, Roger. Uh,
3: I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's the Disney Concert Hall, I think it's the, I think it's the kind of whole Grand Avenue, Bunker Hill mm. thing done, and now this is the second time it failed in the 19, what was it, the 1980s, early 80s? Yeah. Where basically one developer is trying to make a Champs Elysees um, of culture. He's already created a Times Square in LA Live right by the Staples Center. You probably all saw that for the Michael Jackson concert. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of plaza that nobody will use, just as they won't use the Civic Park. And so he's been able to single handedly determine uh, what direction the city decides to make these civic spaces. On, on the one hand, um, I guess there's nothing to be all upset about because of the fact that the public wouldn't be, the public will choose, they'll go elsewhere. It's like water will seek its own level and find a place where there will be vibrant life. On the other hand, one can only see it as a tremendous lost opportunity. Because although much of it wasn't necessarily the public money that was used in a lot of these cases, it was private money that could have actually finally been used to leverage a real public life for a downtown that you know, that deserved it or finally presented an opportunity for something, so.
2: And I'll just very quickly build on on Roger's last comment,
3: which is I think uh, if there's going to
2: be an emblematic uh, uh, set of of spaces in Los Angeles, it might be the new parks, because the state bond initiative. It actually provided the money for a site that, unfortunately, is named Cornfields. although looking at the early surveys of the city, no corn was ever grown there, but we're going to have a hard time losing the name. But the Cornfield site in Taylor Yard may wind up being emblematic places in Los Angeles, so it may be, to go back to our void and solid uh, uh, talk from earlier on, it may be some of the voids, the open spaces and the green spaces that might transform uh, the downtown, at
1: least, of, of Los Angeles. Well, it would be a nice last word, but you don't get the last word. We want to invite the audience <laughs> yes. to uh, participate and ask some questions. But please just raise your hand and wait for a yes. microphone and say your name first. Yes.
7: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, as Peter Tukovsky said, we're turning it to you all for questions and answers. We do want to remind you first, however, that this is being recorded for a video podcast. So if you would please raise your hand and wait for one of us to get to you. There's one of us on each side. There's still say. Uh, so if you would raise your hand and say your name before your question. Thank you so much.
8: Hi, uh, my name is Liz. Um, I actually want to ask um, a question that hasn't been raised or a subject that hasn't been raised, which is Berlin being a city of fear. Actually thinking that not just Berlin, but sort of, you know, the whole German architectural landscape being a bit of, you know, having a lot of fear relating to what Doritje said about um, the energy and the creativity and the activity that's sort of hidden behind closed doors. And same with the Stadtschloss, which is a huge subject. I mean, I have to say that I really like the Palace der Republik and I don't know what's wrong with the green lawn that we have at the moment. Just to be brave and say we do have a void, which is in fact, you know, what we remember of the past. So I would like to, you know, sort of um, raise this issue of: Is Berlin a city of fear in terms of how do we get our architecture out in the world? Anyone want to take that one? I think that's,
5: you know, a very interesting question because when you said it. Uh, a city of fear. I mean, I was kind of going in different directions because uh, one could mean, you know, sort of security issues, and I think then it probably apply more to Los Angeles many um, ways because, I mean, Berlin is not quite, you know, sort of the security gated community uh, city yet that a lot of American cities have become. But Four times fear, the crime rate, though, and here
4: hmm. to compare to LA.
5: Not so many murders. Um, so, but you know, that's Sorry. a different issue of fear. <laughs> yeah, we can design we can discuss fear. that. Yes, design yeah. fear. Design that's what fear. exactly. That's what came out. Um, and I think that's a very important point because I think that kind of fear is actually a fear of history in many ways. Yeah. It's a fear that you know what uh, you were saying earlier too, uh, with regard to you know everything has to be all the holes have to be closed quickly, and it's a fear of history that you know there's no time you can't just leave it why not leave the you know Palace the Republic there for a couple of years, you know, leave it there for a generation and then decide what to do with it. And to not just make a decision really, really quickly because you're scared that, you know, somebody else will sort of do a reinterpretation that then is not in your control anymore. And I think it has, Berlin's development has a lot to do with, you know, the generation that was in power in the early 90s and and their sense of fear that history was going to be taken away from them and that there would be a maybe reinterpretation that wouldn't make... not just the East, but all, I mean, because Berlin has a big debate. I mean, it's not just in East German architecture, but it's the sort of post-war modernism in general uh, because there's a lot of architecture in the West too that's getting, you know, kind of falling apart uh, because it's of a architectural period that's not or just being started to be appreciated. Um, So I think if there was not so much fear of time and fear of history and who might interpret and who might be first to interpret, then maybe we would uh, be a little bit more patient to also wait, and like you said, you know, maybe leave the lawn green and see you know, what develops and what new ideas can really emerge. Um, but that requires a certain sense of security. It, it requires a sense of security that you will come up with an idea, rather than just build something quickly so you don't even have to think about it anymore.
0: Um. Hello, my name is Joachim Rochman I have a question or something to add on, uh, also has to do with fear. Um, Some of you might know that there is a movement in Berlin um, putting townhouses um, into different districts like Prenzlauer Berg, like Friedrichshain and so forth where you have architects, where you have people who would like to build ecologically uh, sensible buildings. And here you have a movement in Berlin by the, um, by people who do not believe that gentrification is a good thing, who attack architects who burn cars and who resist this kind of gentrification that has gone through various districts like Prenzloherberg, like Mitte, Kollwitzplatz where you have uh, people now have been living there for decades who had to move out because um, the houses were um, renovated they didn't have their um, coal ovens anymore now they have central uh, heating system and so forth rents went up people moved in with galleries people moved in with cafes and everything And people who didn't have that much money had to move out. And you see this movement that is not typical for Germany and not typical for Berlin, but you see it through history in various uh, cities, gentrification. And in Berlin, you have a very militant resistance to that who say, we don't want architects. We don't want these these yuppies um, who put in nice buildings for them, even though they are ecologically sensible, even though people do everything correctly, they say, we don't want this. And if you come, we attack you. We burn your buildings, we burn your cars, we're going to smash your windows and so forth.
1: What
6: do you
4: say to that? Yes, it is true. I don't think it's a mass movement that is against gentrification or at least not a mass movement that is using these tools that you described. We all know if you read Berlin newspapers there are certain dates actually you can fix in the year where this car will burn most of the time. <laughs> um, <coughs> But yes, I mean, it it relates, fear is a very strong word. I mean, if you kind of drop your fear off the word fear, I would say yes. You know, the debate is driven by something that is not warmed up by the California sun or, you know, a a culture of belonging that is much more anchored in in an identity system that is present or, you know, whatever Americanization means. I mean, when I was at Tsar, I read many texts. At the time, though, <clears throat> I understood that, there's a, that the debate or the competition for the better idea or for the winning moment in, in a problem solving environment really culturally works out very differently, uh, let's say, in American culture or, let's say, in the Los Angeles environment of doing architecture there than here. And I've always wondered where that is, and you, you come as a A typical architect who has half knowledge about everything, or thinks he has, but actually doesn't know, you know, much about psychotherapy or the human mind, you come up with very superficial explanations. Is the European identity really through families and social uprising, based on the idea of you have to know where you come from? That has to be an unbroken path of identity. That path has to do with architecture, so it can be travelled backwards, and you can have a right and wrong argument. Or is your is your identity something that is much more? Hey, I just came to LA. I want to be an actor, or I want to be a famous architect, or I want to find my void here, where I can unfold. And the anonymity of LA sometimes works much in favor to that than the gentrification fear of certain districts of people who, who when you what you said, protect a territory they just occupied ten years ago. Those people are not the people who are you know from here or defend their family farm. They are people who. Have benefited from the openness of the city, and now they're turning it into, you know, a defense of uh, and try to freeze a temporary moment that uh, cannot be frozen. I, I think I
6: think this, this term of fear is quite interesting, and uh, and because if you look at this, it was the biggest J turn into history ever made by town planners on earth. What happened in the last 15 years in Berlin? You have to see the specific situation of these town planners, because mostly they were involved in the so-called uh, International Building Exhibition uh, uh, of 84 to 87. And uh, it became very clear in the early 90s already that this project more or less had failed, or didn't you know, get to the point where it was supposed to, to get, like recreating a new, vivid, uh, livable city. So these town planners, who came into power in the early 90s had to defend their ideas against a new generation moving to Berlin. So it was the whole uh, architecture discussion who was regarded as an aesthetic discussion was a, in its core uh, a discussion about power, who has the right to, to decide what, what good architecture, good urbanism is. Of course, it was a fight of institutions, of people who wanted, who wanted to get into powerful positions and those who stayed in these problems Positions and were invaded by their own failed uh, experiment. And IBA uh, 84 was, in many parts, a complete failure. And normally, our normally, um, architects should have succeeded to, um, to, to create a new vision of what, what could be an urban space. And that, that did not happen to that extent, as it didn't happen in Berlin. It's only a question of power. People had, and that was, I think, if if there is fear in this game, it's the fear of then 55-year old planets who saw if they kick us out of our positions now, we never will build anything again. And they stayed, and that's what happened then.
5: And I think, too, when you think about power, what is sort of distinct about Berlin is that it became a capital city in this process, yeah. that then you had different players who didn't just have, you know, sort of the East and West Berliners. Uh, you also suddenly had, you know, sort of the power brokers from, from Bonn coming in and kind of imposing their ideas what not just Berlin ought to be, but what the new capital of Germany ought to be. And uh, they, I think, in many ways then introduced, you know, kind of discourses and power plays that re channeled you know, the debates in directions that then you know, kind of destroyed a lot of ideas that might have existed
1: i mean if, we're, if we talk about Berlin and fear, I know we have a young audience, but my mind of course goes about forty years earlier than one thousand nine hundred and eighty four and I know my students are interested in in hearing a Berlin perspective on how important it is to leave uh, strong traces of of, of that era in the city planning and the architecture, but I think we have another question, but maybe we'll we'll hear about that as well.
7: Hi, my name's Crystal. I grew up in Claremont, California, which is a suburb of L.A., and I've been living here in Berlin now for about 12 years. And so my question has to do with about um, how the perception of architects about the potential buyers, how that influences architecture. Because when I think about the way buyers here think, especially apartments or private homes, they're thinking about buying something that they will retain for the rest of their life, that they may pass down to the next generation. And when I think about the way my friends back home have been buying homes, uh, you know, they're thinking about retain, keeping that for a short time, watching it appreciate, well, until recently, until yeah, the so recession, so- then moving you on. you have
2: friends who are buying.
7: I do actually have friends that are mine. So so I'm thinking that uh, the question about disposability and retaining things, how that has influenced or is influencing architecture, if you might say something about that in the context of the two cities.
3: Uh, Well, I can say, I think uh, for Los Angeles, um, the effect on architecture is somewhat indirect, but... um, it's what i I have a kind of little theory about this, which is basically that um, buyers basically everybody is really in the end concerned about property values in los angeles that that's what matters, and so I worked together with Dana Cuff and a guy named Bob Summel on something we called the theory of ozones for Los Angeles, and ozone stand for overlay zones. Mm-hmm. overlay zone is a technique whereby you go, a community gathers itself together, goes to the planning board, which has no basically planning commission, which basically doesn't really have any ideas of its own, and it says, we want this for our community, Um, so we're Hancock Park, we don't want any change, we want to make ourselves an ozone. That basically will ensure that they will stabilize all of their property values, because anybody who comes in with an architect will have to build um, Marcus Welby, you know, a kind of made-for-Marcus-Welby TV home, just like all the other homes in that ozone. And there are um, we, we developed a little um, fictitious but somewhat realistic trace of the development of ozones in Los Angeles. Some of you would know them as golf course communities. In the suburbs, they're more prevalent, but increasingly there's been a, retro, a retroactive ozoning of Los Angeles now so that there are these areas that are actually protected, which actually are means of, as I said, stabilizing property values, but also they have a kind of inclusion, uh, exclusionary effect on architecture, where the architects who want to do them have to play by those rules and the others will basically be in the residual areas that are unprotected, which actually turn out to be the dispossessed, the people who actually don't have much economic or political clout in underserved or um, you know, lower economic, uh, tend, tend to be in low, lower economic um, categories, even though politically if they were organized enough, they could do so as well. So that would be maybe an answer. I don't know if that's quite answering your question, but that's what's ha- tending to happen right now in LA.
2: And I think also in Los Angeles, we need to be clear about where we are and who we're talking about. So for instance, I happen to live on a block where I've been there 15 years and I'm still the newcomer. Uh, and People have retired in place. Now some of this has to do with, with, with property taxes. So if you sell the house and then the next, the next purchaser, basically the people who are there are, are, are paying a tax that was frozen by, by Prop 13. Mm-hmm. And so, uh. Then the minute it's sold and somebody else buys it, you're now being you're now paying a property tax based on the new value. They're, you know, so somebody's paying a hundred a month. You're going to pay, or excuse me, a hundred a year, 150 a year. You're going to pay five thousand a year. So some of this is political and has to do with policy, but also has to do with preference as well. People choose to, to live in these in these places, and it, for where you are, um, it's interesting if you look at a map of how va- property values have changed in the last in the last decade. The only places where, pro- where values have held or increased are in new immigrant communities, like a Huntington Park, for instance, where property values have actually increased where they've declined everywhere else. And these aren't people who are going to flip. These are people who've come to America, who've come to Southern California in order to buy. They believe in that America. They actually do believe in in what people talk about as the American dream. They actually believe in owning property because they can't own it where they came from. And they're people who have invested everything They've actually staked their lives crossing the border in many cases, and they've invested everything that they can pull together. So kids are working, parents are working two jobs in order to buy a house. They're not going to sell it in five years. They're going to leave it to their family members. And just and you can trace that kind of history in a place like East Los Angeles, for instance, where people have held property for generations. And so it's very important. In some places, people are flipping. And that may be true of your friends in Claremont or elsewhere, but in other parts of the city, it's a very different story.
7: Good evening. My name is Senia
5: Rudolf. Um, I lived before in Germany but spent the last nine years in Los Angeles, California and I'm back in Berlin now. My question to you, sir, you mentioned briefly Americanization and um, when I moved back to Germany I had a feeling that a lot of malls were here in Germany and... A lot of it, what? Malls. Malls. Malls, Shop. malls correct. Um, because I remember Germany with little cafes and charming little places. Now we have those malls and boutiques are inside a building, and I was wondering if the idea of a shopping mall is something that we have to welcome more here in Germany because that's what I keep seeing and it's been more and more popularized. Hmm.
4: Okay, I meant that term, and I'm, I'm not happy that I used it. I meant it more, what is really a collective American identity? How does the melting pot or the salad bowl, etc., work? That's a lot of what I learned about and for me, in that history is rooted a stronger openness, a cultural code that allow, allows more, <coughs> you know, the opposite of fear, more bravery to experiment. If we take out a certain <coughs> development of an economic um, social structure that creates architectural prototypes and typologies that start to, um, you know, be visible in other parts of the world. Do I like them as as a user? No, I do like much more a city and a political system. And a, you know, you would have to go very deeply into how a tax system works, how how a um, um, you know rent distribution, rent duration versus ownership durations, and so forth work, to to create a city that what we call Einzelhandel. You know, that every single shop is owned by a single. Mm-hmm. And we live here and we are today here in an area that is absolutely unusual for Germany too. You know, we have a, we have a extreme um, high density of small entrepreneurship, I mean, that you have the first floor or zone of all these streets basically occupied without break by people who are either running coffee shops or, I mean, I go buy shops and I have no clue how they survive because they, they, they sell rubbers who erase, you know, erasers for pencils and I mean I don't even have a pencil anymore but they're specialized in that and so forth. So that's unusual. Can we steer it? Can we control it? It's not really necessarily starts with an architect at all. We can design and we do a lot of urban planning competitions and my favorite problem is always that all our designers or our design teams like to, to Food, coffee shops, and restaurants everywhere, and you know they dream about Siena, uh, as, as Nicholas has the said. Problem, <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's but the that's how you know that we, we do not create necessarily drive potential economic economic investment by the models that we think and envision. I don't like malls. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Thank you all so very much for coming out tonight. On behalf of Sokola Public Square, we do want to thank the Alfred Herrhausen and Society and, of course, the Edis Gallery for sharing their wonderful space with us. And thank you so much.